I don't know if there's anything that is more, I don't want to say it's divisive, but extreme than people's opinions about Christmas music. Either you just love it or honestly, you just don't like it at all. Now, some folks around Labor Day, you're ready for the Christmas stuff to roll out. Uh, others of you, when you hear it's a wonderful Christmas and you hear it's the most beautiful time of the year, you're like, no, it's not. I mean, we have these two extreme views. But on the count of three, I want you to shout out your favorite Christmas song. You ready? Why don't you think about it? Okay. One, two, three. Nobody sang Grandma Got Ran Over by Reindeer. I'm a, I'm a little discouraged in that. But Now, I'll tell you what's interesting is the, the role of music in our world, but the role of music throughout Scripture is really important. Matter of fact, if you go through Scripture, you'll find it interesting um, uh, how critical it is that God loves music. And we love this time of year uh, because of music. Let me give you an example about this time of year, which I think all comes out of God's heart in us for music, is you hear all of these entertainers that all love to just sing about Christmas because it's got to be a moneymaker. So every year we hear the voices of Dean Martin, Nat King Cole, Elvis, Mariah Carey, Karen Carpenter, uh, and we hear these voices and we think, oh, it must be Christmas. But it's bizarre some of the other entertainers that are trying to make a Christmas dollar. For example, uh, 2008, you may want to run out and get this, uh, Snoop Dogg uh, has Christmas in the doghouse. There's your stocking stuffer. And then, if that's not enough, uh, there's one by Twisted Sister. I uh, did not hear Twisted Sister when I was in church. Uh, a, a Christmas album, A Twisted Christmas. One of the more bizarre things that I ever saw on TV was a Christmas special with Mr. Christmas, Bing Crosby. And you can see this on YouTube. It's Bing Crosby singing a duet with David Bowie, and they sang Little Drummer Boy. And here's the deal. It's good. So if you go out on YouTube and check it out, uh, it's interesting what music does to people this time of year. What about music in the Bible? Well, we know in Genesis uh, 4.21 that the very first musician was Jubal, and Jubal also was credited with inventing the harp. And then that continued on for hundreds of years, and then David, of course, mastered the harp. And if you remember, he played for Saul when Saul was struggling with depression and anxiety. He would play this harp. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but they found some of David's uh, writings and his musical scores uh, and uh, he's phenomenal, not just with the harp playing sad stuff, but he was also good at playing really good stuff. And so what they did is they took some of David's writings and they applied it to an electric guitar, and we kind of know what it sounds like. So we're just going to play a clip. This is one of David's tunes. See if you recognize it. Yeah, anybody remember? All right, that's enough of that. Okay. Uh, David sounds a lot like Eddie Van Halen. I don't know. You probably came to church thinking, I bet we're going to sing some Van Halen today at Christmas. So. And we did. And I won the bet. So I did not win a bet. Now, I want you to think about music in the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 5, and Colossians 3, it's these beautiful stories of how the early church would get together and they would sing songs and hymns, and that was always part of their worship. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one of the things I used to do, I don't, Marie said stop doing this, but 
uh, for years when we'd have a life group and somebody new would join the life group, I would say, now, what we always do to start a life group is we always sing special songs together. And she's like, nobody else thinks that's funny but you. But honestly, it's funny every time just to seem like, oh, it's a cult. I knew it would be, you know. But when we get together, what we do, at, even at the beginning of the service, is we sing these, these beautiful songs, it should draw us closer. That's what music does. Music is such a powerful force. Even the book of Revelation, think of all the beautiful music and the hymns that have come out of that one book. Uh, beautiful hymns like, Holy, 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 Worthy is the Lamb, There's Power in the Blood, When the Saints Come Rolling In, and of course the Revelation song. That all comes out of one book out of the Bible. Music matters. So in these next four weeks, as we talk about these beautiful uh, lyrics and these beautiful songs, uh, remember how powerful and how important the music is. And we're going to talk about Mary's song. So in Luke chapter 1, you can turn ahead to verses 46 through 45, and we're going to get there in just a moment. First of all, we need to know uh, who Mary was, that she was visited, of course, uh, by Gabriel. We know that, but who was she? And I'll tell you, ministers have a hard time during the Christmas season because you've heard so much about Mary and Joseph. So this morning, I hope to uncover just a little bit about Mary maybe you hadn't thought about before. And first of all, you need to start back of what Mary was going through emotionally at this time in her life when Gabriel visited her. And what she was going through, first of all, is that Mary was a Jewish woman. Most scholars think she was somewhere between 13 and 15 years old, which meant she was of the age to be engaged. She was from this community, Nazareth, which is about 65 miles from Jerusalem. And she was engaged to a, a man named, anybody? Joseph. Okay, I hope you got that one right. And here's what happened in those days during the engagement. See if that's very similar to your engagement. I bet it wasn't, okay? So here's how the Jewish culture worked in Mary's time, is... Uh, there would be a family, two families, and they would prearrange their kids to get married, okay? And then the groom's parents and a mediator would go to the home of the bride's parents who also had a mediator. The tradition was as the groom's parents and the mediator walked in, a drink would be offered, and they were by tradition to refuse the drink at that moment, okay? They had to wait on the drink, okay? And then you know what took place after that? The bride's parents and the mediator then would offer the dowry, which is I'm going to give you all of this for you uh, to marry my daughter, okay? Then the groom's mediator and the other mediator, they had to agree on terms like, yeah, that's fair. And when they did, they would sign and uh, make an oath with one another. And that covenant, by the way, was every bit as serious as a marriage vow today. Uh, matter of fact, it would take a divorce, even when you were engaged, to break that relationship. Now think about that. Think of how important and how critical that was. Now once that was settled, then you could have a drink, and then you could have this celebration, and then the groom knew he had about a year to get his house in order and get everything ready. Um, imagine today if that's how engagements took place. Imagine if your parents chose who you were going to marry. Don't even think about that very long, okay? I will say this, uh, uh, my mom would have 100% said, 
marry Marie. Now, she had some concerns for Marie marrying me, but that's a whole nother mom issue, but not as far as what she felt as far as Marie. Matter of fact, you know that they are still in many cultures pre-arranging their marriages. Now, the last time I researched this, do you know what the success rate was for pre-arranged marriage? Around 90%. Just saying. Okay, so just think about that. It's that backdrop that you need to understand. And here's this, think about this. There's this young woman, and let's say she's 13 years old. She lives in this very small community of Nazareth. Matter of fact, we know it's small because as Jesus in his ministry began, one of the reasons they said this can't be the Messiah is what? He's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, okay? So here she is in this small community. She's a young lady. She's engaged. And that's when Gabriel shows up. And can you imagine when Gabriel, who we know out of the Old Testament, spoke to Daniel he also in the New Testament spoke to uh, Zechariah and now speaking to Mary and is bringing good news that she has been chosen to give birth to the Savior. Now, can you even fathom what her world would have been like? Especially for a minister, a guy, I can't fathom that. I can't imagine what Mary was thinking and the emotions that she was going through. So it's important to know who Mary was. So many of you are great at taking notes, so let me give you the first thing that you may want to write down is Mary was real. She was real. Verses 26 to 45 clearly let us know historically that she was real, that she was from this small area of Nazareth, which seemed insignificant, but it wasn't. That in the Roman world, Jewish people uh, were not held in high regard, so how would they possibly, the world, know about Mary? In her own culture, the hierarchy, women had very few rights. And in this particular culture, Mary knew that she was basically going to be a servant. Her husband-to-be, Joseph, was a carpenter. Now, what's interesting is we always think in carpenter like our carpenters today, but in that region, and matter of fact, I was just talking to Tobin Wingard again this morning, who's been to Nazareth and seen this whole area. He was painting the picture for me. It was just amazing that in that culture, he probably was a stonecutter. And that carpentry work, as far as wood, was, was secondary, but it was probably a stonecutter. But her life seemed pretty ordinary. That's why it's important to understand, and I love this in the King James, in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and then Luke 1, 37. King James, it says, For with God, nothing shall be impossible. You see, Mary looked at Gabriel and said, How could this possibly be? This seems impossible. And Gabriel right away says, nothing is impossible. Matter of fact, do you remember the first thing she did? She actually went to visit Elizabeth. Now, why did Gabriel want her to visit Elizabeth? To realize, by the way, everything is possible. And as her heart came alive, we began to realize that Mary was real. Now, here's an important part. And please hear me when I share with you this about Mary being real. Some of you have grown up in a Catholic church. Some of you have got very good family members or friends in a Catholic church. So what I'm about to say is important about the perspective of Mary. If I were to hold a coin right now, there's two sides of that coin. The first side of the coin is what I would just simply call misunderstanding. Now here's the misunderstanding. Mary is to be held in high regard, but Mary is not holy 
and Mary is not worthy of worship. We don't worship Mary. We don't pray to Mary. She was real. Uh, she was like us, but she is not to be set apart as holy. Uh, misunderstanding. Biblical misunderstanding. Now, here's what's interesting. When I was probably in high school, uh, it's one of these lessons, and I don't know why I remember it, with my mom, but we were setting it. That's where all good conversations took place in our house. It was the kitchen table. We were setting the kitchen table, and mom puts out some Christmas cards, and she said, now, I want you to look at these Christmas cards. Both of them have Mary. Do you see anything different? And I said, yeah, uh, that Mary is prettier than this Mary, and she's like... <laughs> You are so stupid. No, do you see anything? And I said, well, that Mary has a halo. And she said, right, Mary doesn't have a halo. Mary isn't holy like Jesus. Jesus is holy. Now, you would have thought as a teenager, I would have completely forgot that. But that stuck with me. I'm like, huh, Mary isn't holy. Mary is part of God's plan. There is definitely a misunderstanding. On that second side of the coin is what I would call confusion. And here's the confusion, and this usually comes out of Protestant evangelical churches, and that is we downplay the role and the character of Mary. Don't downplay what Mary did. She was very real. Her courage was real. Imagine being 13 years old and being visited by an angel and courageously accepting the fact that you are going to have the Savior of the world. That is courageous. That is real. Second of all, she was humble. Mary was so humble. She even called herself, it says this in the King James, I am a servant. Now, in those days, you had servants and slaves. Now, a servant is one who would work and would receive pay and benefits. Now, a slave, on the other end, had absolutely no rights. So when she says, I'm a handmaid in Greek, that means slave. She's saying, listen, I already know my place in this world. Matter of fact, she said, because of my place, why would you bless me with this? That is humility. That's what all of us are striving, is to be a slave for Jesus, to be humble in Jesus. And then third of all, she was committed to God's word. I love this, that there are at least 15 references in her beautiful song that go back to Old Testament. I can just see her going to the synagogue and reading 1 Samuel 1 and 2 about uh, the story of Hannah's prayer, having Samuel. I can just see her plowing through the word of God. And we know that because she's quoting from Psalms 34, 2, that the Lord will help those who are helpless. She quoted from Isaiah 45, 21, that God is righteous. He is our savior and our salvation. She told the story from Genesis 30, the story of Rachel and Jacob, and then she also quoted Psalms 126, where she talked about being filled with songs of joy. She was deep in the Word. Let me just share with you a core value at Sherwood Oaks uh, and the West Side. We believe in this with all our hearts, and that is to take the living Word of God, and from the moment a child draws his first breath, we'll do everything we can to keep teaching God's Word. And so I think of, I look around this room, I think of all of you, so many of you who have worked from nursery with our youth or our children. And one of the things I miss the most, to be honest with you, uh, Heather depressed all of us this week. Uh, she sent the entire staff a picture from the balcony of, uh, was it March 8th? What the church looked like, and it was just jam-packed. People were chanting, we love John. Do you remember, I don't know if you, were, I don't know if you remember that. 
it was a great day. And I miss the noise of the kids. I used to have people say, how do you preach when you hear a kid crying? I'm like, because that's music. Or when I hear them laughing or cutting up, or, or if they come and say, hey, we need to run out, the youth group broke something. Who cares? Thank God they broke something because that means they're here. That they can hear God's word. They can hear how valuable and pride that this is the breath of God. In 1 Timothy 4.12 and NLT, I love this, is don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Be an example to all the believers on what to say and the way you live and in your love, your faith, and in your purity. Can we be honest? How many of you this year already have learned some incredible lessons from your kids? They've taught you. Don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but isn't that true? Think of what our kids have done for us. And so when we read the story of Mary and we know that she's committed to God's word, that is a lesson for all of us. That's a lesson for all of us. Mary loved the Lord's word. So let's look at her song. Now this morning we're just going to talk about what I would call two magnificent in Latin. That's what this song means, magnificent stanzas in Mary's song. Now a stanza... Uh, the simplest form is a, it's a story point. So as you're telling and you're breaking down a story, a stanza is telling the same story, maybe looking at it from a little different perspective. So let's look at this perspective that Mary has. And the first stanza is simply this. It's the rescue story of Mary. Look at verse 46, starting there. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Don't we all love a good rescue story? I mean, seriously, don't we love that? I remember one of the best definitions that I heard of those who work on the front lines of emergency services, our doctors, our nurses, our policemen, our, our firemen, our firewomen, all the people who are in emergency services. Here's the definition that I love. This is right after 9-11. And somebody was asking one of the firemen, what do you see your position as, your job? And he goes, oh, that's really easy. He said, when everybody else is running out, we've chose to run in. That's what emergency workers do. When everybody else is in a panic, they run in. They don't ask questions, they just get there. Their attitude is they will do whatever it takes to reach people wherever they are. That's the church's mission. We still, all of us know people who desperately need to be rescued, that need Jesus Christ. And whose responsibility is it to bring him to Christ, all of us. We are part of this family, reaching out to those who need Christ. Toyota every year uh, cranks out some great commercials. <clears throat> I usually get more choked up over one Toyota commercial than I do all the Hallmark movies that uh, I've ever watched. But this latest one is, is a tearjerker. If you go online, you can find it. It's simply called Supermom. And they just show... Uh, this woman, it looks like a single mom, and she is a nurse, so she's got her outfit on. It shows her doing everything from putting up the, 
the tree, putting it on the car and doing the shopping and doing all the stuff, running back and forth to work. And then she gets a call, what looks like on a Christmas day, and she's called out an emergency. And as she's heading out, she gets to her car and there's a card, homemade card from her kids. And you open it up and it simply says, super mom. And uh, she's crying like I'm crying. And she got teared eye and the kids are there. And then everybody runs out and buys a Toyota. It's just a beautiful American dream. <laughs> but you know, we all need to be reminded of the power of a rescue story. And Mary, Mary realized she needed to be rescued. Think about that. She calls... Uh, the Savior that she's going to give birth to. Uh, she glorifies the Savior. She calls him the Mighty One. She says, holy is his name. His mercy will extend to all generations. Mary knew. She knew this, that Jesus, the, the Son of God, will have a timeless effect for generations to come. She's speaking on our behalf. But look at verse 47. Do you notice what she calls Jesus? My what? Savior. Isn't that awesome? In other words, Mary said, I need to be saved too. I love that she realized everyone needs to be saved. We all desperately need to be rescued. And there are times if we get too big for britches, we all need to remember our own rescue story and where we were before Christ and that there is still hope in Jesus Christ no matter how hopeless the situation seems. Stanza two is simply the rescue story for the world. Verse 51, if you're following, he says, and he performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts and he brought down rulers and their thrones and he lifted up the humble and he filled the hungry with good things. But he has sent the rich away empty and he helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. The rescue plan for the world. The strategy is very simple. First of all, he rescued the humble. Verse 52, I love in Psalms 20, verse 7, it says, men trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the Lord. Hey, we need to understand that in our lives, that we need to humble ourselves. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the what? Meek. The meek. He'll rescue the hungry. Those that are seeking, God will do everything he can. Matter of fact, we know in Luke 19.10, it says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. People are still spiritually hungry. I love the story in John 4. Uh, you know it well. It's the, the woman at the well, and Jesus has this conversation. He knows that the conversation starts from physical water, and it gets into spiritual water. And he lets her catch on to the point of the understanding of you need a savior, your life is messed up, and I'm the one you've been praying for. And when she gets it, she gets it in a huge way. And she runs into town and she tells all the townspeople, the Messiah that we've been praying for, I just talked to him and we can go find him if we leave right now. And the entire town went to find Jesus. I love that story. But in between that, there's this little two or three verses, and it kind of gives you a glimpse of the dense nature of these disciples. Okay, do you remember they went into town to get the food? They come back, and there's Jesus 
And here's the conversation. Uh, Jesus, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus, we got some food for you. And Jesus said, um, I have food. I'm not hungry that you're not even aware of. And I think it was Peter who said, uh, did somebody bring Jesus some food? I mean, they completely over their head. Now, what's Jesus saying? There is a world out there and they are hungry. And I'm not talking physically. I'm talking about their souls are yearning for help. And so Jesus said, if you are seeking and you are hungry, he is there for us. And he will rescue his people. Now, the only people that Mary would have known would have been the nation of Israel. But then we get to 1 Peter 2.9. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said this in 1 Peter 2.9. You, speaking to us, the church, are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now listen, uh, people have asked me, John, do you think Israel still has a special place in God's heart? I absolutely believe that. And I think uh, no matter what the world is going on, you should be keeping your eye on Israel. Okay, that's me. But I also know God has a passion, not just for Israel. Guess what? He has a passion for you. He has a passion for me. And he wants his son to give all of us hope. And that rescue story is for all of us. I mean, honestly, is there anything greater than when you see somebody so far away from God and when they find Jesus and you see what that's doing in their life? Folks, that is as good as it gets. You want to know why ministers stay in the ministry for long periods of time? You know why? Because the pay is ridiculous. Okay, is that why? (laughs) No. Do you know why? Because of that. Rescue stories. About the time you really get down, you see a transformation take place, and you know that that's Jesus. There's no other way to explain it. Some of you have your own rescue stories where you look back and you think, I know this rescue mission is real because you can't believe how far away I was from God, and to find my seat at the table is beyond explanation. There is a song that comes out. Every Christmas season, they play it time and time again. And it's one of those songs that's very thought-provoking, kind of like Jingle Bells, you know. <laughs> but you'll hear this song, and you'll go, oh, my land, the power of this song. And to me, the only thing about the song is confusing is the guy that wrote it is Mark Lowry, who's a Christian comedian. Okay, that's kind of weird. But just listen to the words of Mary, Did You Know? I'm going to go ahead and sing it, if you guys are okay with that. I am not going to do that. Okay, so here we go. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make us new? That this child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? And did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? This is my favorite part. That when you kiss this little baby, you kissed the face of God. We just need to let that sink in. That's what Mary's song is all about. So the very first time I heard that song... I thought, it's a great song. I've got the answer within 10 seconds. She knew. She knew. Mary knew. 
Now, did she comprehend it? How could she possibly comprehend? But I gotta be honest, uh, all three of our kids, when I held our babies the first time, I couldn't comprehend it. Could you? Like, wow. I remember Max Licato, <coughs> he has a famous thing called 21 questions that Mary must have had. Here's my favorite question. Did you ever look at Jesus and think, that's God eating my soup? I mean, every normal day, how could it possibly be normal when you're looking and thinking, this is the savior of the world? No, we can't comprehend it. But her song magnifies, that's why they call it magnet, that her song magnifies Jesus. And that's all we need. And all the craziness of this season, that's all we need. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we're so thankful, not just for music, but for these very specific songs that draw us into your presence. And this song by Mary, this very young woman who simply says that she's blessed because she knows what God has asked her to do, to bring the Savior of the universe into our world. And we can't comprehend that, but we know it's true. And we're so thankful to be here today that you love us so much that you surrendered your life for us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.